I'll edit the show for you guys. Don't worry. Okay. Yeah. Thanks so much. No, that's cool. fine. Um, um, yeah. So I guess, do you want to kind of host it or should we host it? Because we wrote questions to ask. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. No, you host it. Okay, cool. So it, well, it's a pleasure to have you and, and welcome. Um, so the text we want to discuss today is Edward's Wait, I have to stop you right there. You have to yeah. say who you are. No one knows who's on my yeah. show. Where are we? This is the first, sorry, I have to be pedantic professor here. Right. And learning you guys, learning. Uh, <laughs> we should do that again. Say, okay. say who you are. Say like, oh, East is a podcast listener. Is My name is so, like, we're so-and-so. We run this journal based out of here. Do the whole, you have to, you have to imagine that you're talking to people who don't know who you are, which okay. you will be. Perfect. So, hi, I'm Joseph. I'm Amira. And we are the Cadre Journal out of Ithaca, New York, out of Cornell University. We're a student-run podcast on anti-imperialism. And we're very excited to be on the podcast. The East is a podcast. We're very excited to be here. Thank you. That was very not forced at all. And not... <laughs> 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 I feel like we're the most low energy people of the group. There yes, are other yes. people who are a little bit more we're like possessed. Like, so and we're just like we are No, that's fine. We can we can energy is a we can have energy during the middle of the show. Sometimes it takes a few minutes to warm up. But like thank you for having me on. I appreciate the invite. Yeah. I'm sorry this took so long to organize. I have like a, a brain filled with peanut butter these days. I don't know what's going on up there, but yeah, thank okay. you for inviting I mean, me. And also we were talking about how like this chapter is kind of dense and it was good to like read yeah. it and take notes and stuff. Well, like he says a lot of things and he goes through a lot of people. Mm. And I feel like it's one of those chapters that you do definitely want to take notes because it's yeah. like every paragraph, there's like a point to be made and perhaps a point of contention. I don't yeah. know you're thinking yeah no it's uh i mean saeed was from did we tell people what we're doing i wasn't paying attention to your yeah well that's kind of how we wanted to, we wanted to <laughs> what are we doing <laughs> so to begin is to say we're talking about edward saeed's culture and imperialism and kind of i wanted to begin maybe i don't know if you'd prefer to do this but to even introduce saeed because people who will listen to our show may never have heard of him before not know why he wrote the text so i don't know if you would like feel able to kind of introduce him to a new audience. Ooh, that's a big, that's a big, uh, that's a big task. I, I guess the easiest thing to say, um, at the outset is that Pal uh, Edward Said, he was a Palestinian American intellectual scholar, critic, uh, public speaker, kind of public intellectual, uh, born in, I think he was, uh, I think in the late thirties or early forties in, he was Palestinian. His family was part uh, Egyptian, I want to say, or part Lebanese. Part Lebanese, sorry. And but he was they were they were Palestinians and Christian Palestinians specifically. That's kind of what explains the um, the the first name Edward. He was named after the Prince of Wales, I think, according to his memoirs. Uh, yeah. They were kind of Anglophone, Anglophile, Christian, Protestant Arabs, yeah. which. Um, you know, in the context of just a brief aside of uh, bio biographical, they were kind of a minority of a minority in the sense that they were Christian Palestinians and they were minority Christian Palestinians in the sense that the majority Christian Palestinians are Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox or not Eastern Orthodox, but they're not um, Protestants, which mm -hmm. is what Sa Sa'i's family was. Right. And um, he, like a lot of, he, sort of uh, a lot of children of the elite, a sort of class that he represented, 
um, that he was from. He uh, he was sent to the elite schools of his of his uh, of his region, which was um, I think what was that place in Egypt called Victoria College? I don't remember now. This oh. stuff used to be in the back of my head somewhere, but um, you know he went to like the Eden of the Middle East in Cairo somewhere, I think, um, oh. and then he was actually kicked out. Uh, and sent to America to do to finish his kind of high school or middle school or whatever, and then he sort of embraces that. I know he went to school in Mount Hermon. I think it's called Mount Hermon. It's in Vermont somewhere. So he was kind of like a child of like the upper crust, uh, uh, you know, of his society, and he joined the America upper crust American society in terms of education. But you know, obviously, with this Palestinian background and with like the sort of burden of being a Palestinian anywhere, in the sense that like you're this you're this people of this, this, this sort of dislocated nation of the planet. And Said also, uh, for most of his life, lived in New York, which, you know, is an important city to the history of Zionism, right? It's a history of, so it's a very sort of complicated history, personal history in terms of his own, let's say, you know, subjectivity as a Palestinian Christian Arab born in the mid 20th century who experienced the Nakba um, firsthand in the sense that like he lived he lived through it i mean i think they were safe at the time but they fled i think he was like eight years old or something like that there's you should read the memoir it's been 25 years since i've read it so it's called out of place cool. it's very good but um uh you know to to kind of to, to speedily go through this he uh, gets his education in the u.s he studies at princeton i think as an undergrad does his phd at harvard and um is trained as a Victorianist, kind of 19th century, uh, you know, that's who he studies under. I think it's like Monroe Engel, I think some of his, his, his visors. His visor was a was a Dickens scholar, actually. Wow. Uh, I think, I think. And, um, and, you know, that was the kind of tradition he came from. He was like kind of critical humanist. Mm. And he came from a kind of intellectual sort of humanities tradition that doesn't really exist anymore. That's something that we'll probably end up discussing. Um, yeah. I, I kind of made a note here is that this is also like something more fundamental than it's than any kind of movement or anything is that Said lived in a kind of analog world. Said's sort of intellectual and like training and most of his interventions were were composed in sort of in a mostly analog world. I mean, of course, too, in the 90s, there was Internet and stuff. But yeah. in the sense that like the world, the media world that formed him was a world of, you know, books and letters and, you know, men of, you know, sort of like the great intellectual traditions of people kind of speaking broadly at kind of broad audiences. Again, something that doesn't exist in our time now. We have these kind of like Insta pundits now, but in Saeed's day, there were like these grand intellectuals. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying one is better than any other, um, but in the sense of like, you can kind of get the scope from that, from his influences, from the kind of reading and, uh, you know, the culture of specialization. I think what they would call that, like his generation yeah. is, is, is very different than the kind of world they lived in. Uh, the what we have now in terms of like the modern academy. But anyways, I digress. He gets a job at Columbia um, and uh, writes, you know, for the next four decades, going go on to sort of produce some really iconic texts mm. and very influential um, and kind of like really sort of capital I influential in the sense that entire fields of study and institutions and yeah. projects and books and countless books and all kinds of careers were built on this guy. And his and his work in the sense that like in like in a really direct sense too. I don't mean that like like playfully. Like a lot of people made careers like just talking about Edward Said's and digging into him, and you know because that's kind of what happens. Um, it's kind of a result of kind of the machine of academia 
and like kind of like writing and publishing and humanities in general is that it produces these, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of stars, yeah. uh, kind of intellectual stars who then become whose names and their works become pretty big interventions. Now, mm. with that comes, you know, with great responsibility comes, what is it with great bird? What, what's the expression? With great power comes great responsibility in the sense that your audience then expands to a much, to an audience that like most academics aren't really used to um, engaging with, which is like, you know, a generalized non-specific audience. And Said had this also thing of being a Palestinian Arab yeah. uh, living in a world where, you know where Zionism gets to like gets to gets to sort of control the, the the narrative at the end of the day, where you're not his term was permission to narrate. So mm. I guess in terms of like biography, the big tests obviously are like you know the most influential ones are in terms of you know capital I influence in terms of you know being on syllabi and stuff like that is obviously Orientalism, this book Culture and Imperialism, which to my in my view I always read it as a series of essays. I think that like it's not it's a it, it kind of looks like a book at a certain distance, but it reads more like a uh, which is it reads more like a series of like you know uh, you know finely stitched together essays. I would say they weren't just loose. I mean, some people say that to like insult and dismiss a book. They're like, oh, this wasn't some sort of coherent thing. But compared to compared to say Orientalism, which actually was a kind of coherent project that he like sat down and he studied in. I think he was like at Stanford. I think for like a couple of years the Institute for Behavioral Sciences or something like that. I don't remember, but that was like a project, you know, in the way that like academics, some do like sit down and work on a thing and kind of work their way to the end. Whereas a lot of the stuff in this book and cultural imperialism are kind of where had been, I would say marinating or stewing or whatever food metaphor you want for mm -hmm. since the wake of Orientalism. And I feel that like this book is kind of like a culmination, not a culmination because that's too, that's too easy. Uh, in the sense that it, it is a kind of distillation of some decades of like radicalization that I think that like changed his political worldview that say in 19, you know, late mid in the second half of the 1970s when he's writing Orientalism versus like the early 90s when he's writing this book. I mean, I think this book comes out in 94 or something. So it's a very different world, those two different eras. Um, and maybe we can kind of get into that. But essentially that's kind of like, a, and then he, you know, He's, you know, he died in 2003, four, five, yeah. I want to yeah. say. Um, like, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's a lot more in between that, but um, that's just a kind of brief intro. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really great introduction. And I think it gets into the fact that, like, even approaching this text, it's funny because you look at the table of contents and he's got a chapter on, like, Joseph Conrad, on W.B. Yeats. You know, he talks about a bunch of literary figures and so you saying that he trained under a Dickens scholar I think kind of provides some context that is otherwise missing from from this because it's really like a sort of literary study as well in the way that as we were even discussing before we began there's a kind of view of studying imperialism that it has to be like economic and political rather than the culture and, and especially the literature of the colonizer which is quite fascinating but we wanted to specifically focus on a later chapter in the book in in the third section um, entitled collaboration independence and liberation and maybe just to kick it off we can discuss what he's broadly talking about in those three concepts so he dedicates quite a significant amount of the chapter to collaboration and talking about the sort of in, engaging with also Fanon as well a lot of Fanon's concept of the colonial bourgeoisie and 
the education system that produces, you know, sort of collaborative uh, people who will assist in neocolonialism later on, as Nkrumah discusses. But maybe just to begin, we could discuss his concept that he's sketching throughout of a liberationist politics rather than an overtly nationalist or nativist politics, which I found really fascinating. I think contributes well to the discussions that are still taking place today about nationalism and and such a thing as like a quote-unquote progressive nationalism or what he's engaging with Fanon's concept of social consciousness instead of a liberationist politics above all. I was trying to I was trying to find a way to formulate an answer to your question. So, I I'm going to try. I'm going to try. All right. So this chapter <laughs> Okay. Uh there's there's a lot here. Okay. So there is this kind of fluid movement from this thing about collaboration. Um, and he kind of uses this essay by uh, Robinson, Rodney Robinson, I want to say. Ronald Robinson, Rodney Robinson. Ronald Robinson's paper, Non-Europeans, Foundations of European Imperialism. Yeah. And he sort of starts at this, he starts at this seminar on imperialism. It kind of sets the scene that way. It's an interesting sort of opening. And he quotes this long thing about how, like a, something to remember, this, this guy, whoever he is, Ronald Robinson, I actually didn't, never, I had never heard of them before rereading this. I read this book a long time ago, so returning to it has been interesting. But Robinson sort of is this character that he obviously met or something, um, or I don't know if Said was there or read the proceedings later. But essentially, he sort of like puts up this kind of proposition that like, you know, without the contribution of the colonized, without the sort of active collaboration, the term is, of the colonized, that, you know, imperialism of all stripes could not have cannot cannot have, could not have been so successful, right? European, right? That's the kind of opening, uh, that's the kind of opening gambit. And Said kind of you know parries that. I feel that the with this example of this exchange of letters between Ernest Renan and Afroni, right? Um, this business of you know like in questions of you know in the Revue de deux de mondes in which the native using terms defined by in advance by Réon tries to, quote, disprove the Europeans' racist and culturally arrogant assumptions about his inferiority. That's 263. So, so that's kind of like he sort of opens, the, the opening gesture of the essay is to cite this example of like, here's how people think about Orientalism now, Orientalism, about how people talk about European imperialism. Mm -hmm. And one thing that he notices is that, oh, there's this active sort of like effort being made to, to narrate the history of imperialism is like, well, they participated with us, right? There was a lot of them that were participating with us. And so that's a key thing to understanding this, right? Like that itself is a kind of political reading because you're saying that, oh, it's, you know, just to point out that, like to point out that there was this active, there was this active set of collusion between a class of people and the people who colonized them, right? Is that, is, is it a seemingly, you know, it's a true thing. And of course it's true in different contexts, but the idea of generating this theory of collaboration, right? And this is what Said kind of begins, begins the sort of opening gambit why, and then uses this exchange of letters between Renan and Afroni to describe, to describe like the position of someone actually like Said. Did you guys pick up on that? Did you guys see any kind of like um, Said kind of seeing in Afghani a version of himself? Well, right. When he's talking about uh, Afghani, he's talking about this sort of like saying Islam is better and that the West improved itself by borrowing from the Muslims, that part. And also that when he says Afghani, like Indian lawyers in the 1880s, belongs to a stratum of people who, while fighting for their communities, try to find a place for themselves within the cultural framework they share with the West. 
they are the elites. I think that's what very similar to what you were saying before about Sayyid's particular position within the West when he comes and becomes part of the elite within American society as well. Yeah. Amir, did you have anything to say? I feel like you've been exceedingly quiet. No, no. I, I feel like I'm just thinking through it because I had a lot of thoughts about this and even like the way collusion is theoretically being posited. Because first of all, okay, even the way that Fanon is situated as kind of a third world mm, yeah. native intellectual, I think is not, I don't particularly find very convincing because I think he exists within a specific nexus of diasporic intellectualism what she does, which Saeed does talk about within the chapter, but like that movement from like, you know, colonized country to the country's metropole and existing within that metropole and having your intellectual kind of moment grow there, I think is a testament to a kind of, I don't know, to a kind of specific diasporic like intellectualism. I don't really know how to, how to put that, but I think the problem is that I think there's too much of a binary that's being created between the non-European um, like imperial system that's being critiqued and the European one. But I think that there's a lot of fluidity in terms of like how do you characterize European and non-European, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean the 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 uh, I mean with Fanon, his own personal story is that he's he's a. Uh, a Martinican. He's obviously from Martinique, but he's a displaced. He is, in theory. I mean, I'm not in theory, but in reality, that he is a displaced African, right? And so, the in the in the case of like, which is the sense that like, you know, this this triangular trade between Africa and you know the Western Hemisphere and back to colonial Britain or like Imperial Britain was the kind of basis of our what we think of as the Western Hemisphere, right? Like a big or foundational role that it played. So I think obviously in the role of Fanon is that returning to Africa, the continent of Africa, is also returning to the idea of Africa as a place of origin of his own self and like the people who were brought over as slaves. And so that act of solidarity with Algerians, right, who are also Africans, um, you know, but in this, and, and, that, and, and that is an interesting sort of, that has been one of the kind of structuring forces of his own work is that in the sense that this is kind of, you know, um, in Fanon's sort of affiliation, let's put it that way, with the FLN and with the sort of the cause of third world liberation in the case of Algeria, um, it is a kind of act of like international solidarity in a sense, right? In a literal sense, in the sense that like, yeah, Fanon is an Algerian, right? Like he's not, he's like moving from somewhere else to join, to like be in solidarity. Mm -hmm. Now, the specific history of Africa as a site of imperial conquest is playing a role here in the same way that like Martinique, his own Martinican identity and the language that he speaks in French and like all those things were imbued upon him as a, you know, descendant of this violent, you know, civilizational force called transatlantic slavery. So like there's so many things in the life of Fanon that need sort of like disentangling. And obviously like the fact that he dies so young with like a relatively, um, you know, relatively small body of work to kind of stitch him together. And this is actually something I wanted to say at the outright is that conversations like this and in general academia sort of like doing intellectual history, we have to be really careful because, you know, we, we want us as like literary critics and like people just reading things, we want to imbue a kind of 
um, unitariness onto people. Like we, we create authors in our head by reading these books. We generate an image of an author and that image either corresponds or like doesn't correspond to like reality. And like, it, you know, and, and often it doesn't, right? And so like manufacturing, say, Edward Said, the intellectual, you know, for an audience of, you know, a whopping, you know, whatever, a few thousand people. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's like, you know, we are sitting here manufacturing him and talking about it this way. You know, is there, a, is there a way of doing it without doing that? I don't know. I don't think so. I think in the end, we have this idea of human beings as kind of, especially writers and intellectuals. We tend to kind of, collapse them into their list list of works and we tend to kind of think of, we can, we tend to kind of imagine their lives through their bibliographies so yeah. so you know in especially the, especially in the case of fanon right fanon's yeah. books are what we have we don't have we don't have like unlike said we don't have like a hundred plus interviews of him talking we don't have segments of could you imagine Franz fanon on like charlie rose that would be amazing <laughs> uh, like we don't have that so there's like there's such like a there's such like a fragmentariness of say someone like Fanon, who just because of the nature of his existence and the briefness of it and where he lived and how he lived and the kinds of people that he joined, you right. know there is that and whereas where Said lived and what he was and the era that he lived in and the kinds of burdens that were put on his neck, you know there there is the obviously overlaps between Fanon and Said, and you can kind of see them. But it was interesting I saw in Afghani, somewhat say but there was the quote that that that. Uh, was already mentioned by Joseph, belongs to a stratum of people who, while fighting for their communities, try to find a place for themselves within the cultural framework they share with the West. Right. I mean, if that's not like an autobiographical statement you know, <laughs> yeah. for Edward Said, I don't know. I don't know what is. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that too, because at the end of the chapter, Said starts talking about the Black Jacobins and CLR James. Mm -hmm. And of course, like we've had a lot of conversations about this too, where like Fanon's like, you know, the, the gap in his intellectual work as it pertains to Haiti sometimes feels like a, an absence that weighs heavily. And I think it's interesting that Saeed decided to start talking about Haiti. Yeah. I think it makes sense, even though I, obviously Fanon died very early and obviously with the Algerian independence or there was a lot happening but like yeah I don't know it, it when I was reading it at least it felt like he was filling in theoretically where Fanon like kind of didn't didn't fill in yeah I mean there's also like a thing too of we've we've uh, we've done a thorough job of making Fanon into like an object of sort of textual like we, we've done like this very fantastic, very excellent job of, of, of textualizing him into this author, authorial figure. And I think in so many ways, it's a disservice to him that the kind of attention and kind of normalization, I would say, like, I think one term was like domesticization, like domestication of his politics of like, here's this guy who was like, this guy supported the violent overthrow of French imperialism in the third world. Okay. You can't, you can't talk like that today in the academy. Like, let's yeah. be real. You can't say that stuff, but yeah. you can talk highly of people who do, at least some people, right? That's that's yeah. the structuring contradiction of like the modern academic sort of machine, right? That, that you have an immense source of radicalism, like you have immense amount of radicalism undergirding extremely conservative modes of thinking, right? Yeah. That are 
that actually that are present in this text. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm a student of Said. I'm like a, I'm like a, you know, my, I spent years studying him and I studied with people who studied him. I studied with actually his nephew, you know, so people who I yeah. had a lot of different weird connections to him and yeah. I knew a lot of his colleagues. So I got a lot of anecdotes uh, about him and like the, the overriding, the overriding sort of impression that I get from this text at this point in my life, that it's like, wow, this guy was really afraid of nationalism and mm. had, and, and had really nothing to say about a lot of third world revolutions that took place in his lifetime yeah. that were, that were really transformational, but he really keeps silent. Like China is nowhere in this text, yeah. Yeah. you know, like, like China, at least on this, I, I'm trying to think now, is it in the book? I don't like, you know, the role that China played in terms of like setting up as a model of, of say, like, you know, uh, you know, imperial is of anti-colonial or anti-imperialist history. That's, that's just not here. Right. Like, I mean, there are mentions of China, like, you know, there is, there are sort of like passing mentions of the China, but in terms of like his selection of what is termed sort of third world revolution is very, very, very small. And on top of that, he's extremely negative about the wholesale results. I mean, he makes this pretty bold claim. Uh, he said they like he says about Cabral and Fanon would be disappointed yeah. with the present with the results of their efforts. I mean, that's a pretty like that's that's a pretty damning thing to say. Like I and I I was I was I was curious to see what you guys think about that. Uh, it's so interesting. I I don't know because reading it, I mean, when he talks about and even in comparison like doing a close reading as well of Fanon's discussion of the pitfalls of the nationalist consciousness. I think that, that he's perceiving some aspects of perhaps the, the limitation of, and even reading some of the like evocative language that he uses from Césaire, like the invention of new souls and this sort of high aspiration, like it kind of is reminiscent of like the, like Che Guevara's new man in this weird way of like, you need to invent a, a new person beyond sort of the the limitations of nationalism, but I but yeah I agree that he's very cynical of it and 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 as you as you said at the outset he talks about humanism like we have on page two sixty nine where he's referencing how odd the word humanism sounds in the context of this where Fanon says national Fanon performs an act of closure on the empire and announces a new era national consciousness he says must now be enriched and deepened by a very rapid transformation into a consciousness of social and political needs, in other words, into real humanism. And, and it's this kind of reinforcement of humanism, but I think that maybe speaks to, not to sort of jump around too much, but when he's discussing sort of universality later on, and he kind of gets into this, like I think he has a line where he says, our goal is to invent a new, human, a new uh, universalism or something yeah. to that effect. Did you want to add anything to that? Tina? Yeah. No, I was, I was, I didn't know if you were talking to me or to Amir. Oh yeah. To, to uh, Amir, yeah. Uh, he, the, the, um, Saeed is a, Saeed is a secular humanist. Okay. Mm -hmm. Proud. Yeah. Um, proud, 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 secular humanist. What that means is in, in effect, right. Is that we're talking, we're talking anti-communist. Yeah. Right. right? That that's communism for him was nothing. He had he had a lot of Marxist influences, yeah. He, but was wholesale uh, rejection of Marxism. Right. Right. This was not this. Said was not someone who 
who mostly congregated with uh, mostly liberal intellectuals, mm-hmm. uh, a liberal intellectual class. Uh, and even then, the like kind of capital M Marxist class of intellectuals in the U.S. are mostly, in effect, liberal. Uh, and as he points out in his critique, in his mentioning of like the Frankfurt School and stuff, is that most, and he's right about that. Yeah, that, they, right. that their wholesale antipathy for the third world. I mean, forget Habermas. He should have talked about um, uh, what's his name? Uh, did, did Horkheimer's you know wholesale endorsement of the Vietnam War? Right. right? Yeah. Like he could have easily brought that up. And so I think for Said, the enterprise of theory was he was he was an early he was like an early practitioner of it and like booster of it. He was at that conference actually in in Johns Hopkins, the like the one where Derrida gave his paper. Um, or something there's like a famous conference like who cares but but like i think he was there and stuff and like he you know he was but then in the end i kind of he didn't really have any interest in it and and obviously palestine is a big is a big factor here and he wrote this famous paper famous essay for the for the um lrb the london review of books which is called my my dinner with jean paul chartre or something like that my encounter (laughs) with jean Chartres, which is very funny but also a very damning a very damning sort of a, a damnation of the sort of uh, the the outright sort of Zionism and you know capitulation you know on Palestinian human rights and human humanity on right. the part of many elite leading so called Marxists or whatever critical intellectuals right. you know and so the the strange intersection that Said lived in is on the one hand here is this guy who lives at the heart of like Western academia liberal academia right the guy was the president of the MLA the Modern yeah. Languages Association right. he was like president actually one year I think in like the nineties or something. And when I in two th- and that guy was the president in the nineties. And here, think about this: in two thousand thirteen or fourteen, they voted down, you know, BDS, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. so that tells you all you need to know, right? And that was 10, 15, 10 years later, twelve, twenty years later. It's more conservative, supposedly. A critic like criticizing Israel is still, you know, acknowledging the existence of Palestinians as human beings and suffering under apartheid. Apartheid Israel is like is 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 something that academia can't do. Right. right. And so like that structuring hypocrisy is something that I think went, uh, you know, had a profound effect on him personally and professionally. And yet, you know, this is a guy who made his life in that world. I mean, Colombia is not exactly the margins of American academic life. Right. Like this guy had immense amount of kind of influence, both locally and institutionally and kind of globally. Now, in t- and now reading this closely, reading this text back closely, you realize the antipathy he has for um a without saying it basically religious nationalism right. and nationalism yeah. in general right and that antipathy antipathy is very interesting because what happens between the publication of orientalism and the publication of this book right which is the iranian revolution course, right 1979 yeah. happens and it frightens a lot of people outside of the u.s like sorry, outside of the U.S. in the West, it frightens a lot of people. This spec, yeah. like, like this is a pre-internet world, right? They watched ABC, then they watched NBC, then they yeah. watched CBS, then they read the New York Times, then they read the Washington Post. Like that world was it was fervently anti-Iranian. So of course, like so so then to look at what Said writes about Iran, I mean, the most he writes about is in Covering Islam, which is a really interesting book that I think people um, it's kind of like part of the so-called Orientalism trilogy. Um, which is, you know, Orientalism, the question of Palestine and covering Islam. I can't remember which came first, though. I think it was covering Islam. And he calls that kind of a trilogy of text. And 
covering Islam, he had, he sort of writes, a, it's kind of like a reaction to the media's reaction, to the Western Anglophone media's reaction to the Iranian Revolution. And also, but, it, you know, that antipathy is definitely palpable. Yeah. You know, that line about, you know, um, there they, he doesn't really critique the places that he doesn't have, that he has antipathy for, but he certainly doesn't think of, you know, the projects of liberation all around the world, like Zimbabwe, like China, like the... Right like the struggle of the Vietnamese, right? Like that's, yeah. like these are, these are things that don't, these are things that like don't really, I mean, he, he they mention them, but in the sense of like, he doesn't find much inspiration in them. And it's, and it's really telling, you know, and it's really telling. And then there's a, there's a bigger thing. I mean, we were, I wasn't going to get into it until later, which is that the location of imperialism for Said. And Said is, and, and it's understandable that he as a Palestinian subject, he locates imperialism, his main kind of compass or imperialism, the kind of anchor that he drops, is in a very specific kind of West Asian history where it's, you know, Europe and it's, you know, mostly Europe and like sort of England and France colonizing the region of the world where he's from, right? But the dimension that like the limits of his thinking are very obvious when he when he doesn't sort of obviously incorporate that the land that he's living on, right? Like the New York City is itself colonized land. That yeah. settler colonialism of the Zionist variety is a is a is a not so distant covenant cousin of the settler imperialism that colonized Turtle Island, right? Mm. Like that, there are kind of gestures towards this stuff, but that's not here, and that's not here in like the basis of his thinking, because mm. America is always America, and he makes these like he makes these obvious like analogies between like Europe and America, and like clearly saying that that's where the metropole is, right? But like. America is itself part of the colonial project. Obviously, he know this, but it's that the the um, the discursive or like he had, you know the sort of the remapping or I don't know what the word is. That's a shitty word, but I, I want to say that like his compass could ha like I wish that his compass was more attuned to yeah. the critique of settler colonialism that is that is really really powerful. I say more powerful than ever among at least critical people that like mm -hmm. the project of talking about the you know the eradication of the of the civilizations on turtle island so-called north america and the wider global project and situating say the story of zionism as part of a larger sweep of settler colonial history right that like nash and when you do that you you can't say that nationalism is inherently bad and bourgeois across the board mm -hmm. right like you can't say that that's not you're you're gonna tell you're gonna tell like a bolivian who like is proud of their plurinational project, right? Which is not the nationalism of white supremacy, right? right. It's not European white supremacy. It's something else. Like you're gonna tell, like you know, you're gonna tell like um, I don't know, like uh, you know, uh, you're gonna tell people that like who are fighting a Vietnamese, right? Like a Vietnamese person who's like a who believes in their country, who believes in say like the perfection of Vietnamese identity and food and language. Right, you're gonna really say that that's a bad thing, motivating that guy to pick up an AK-47 and possibly, you know, give up his life fighting these imperialist invaders. I'm not gonna say that. I would never say that in a million years, right? <laughs> like, what's bad about that? Right? Like, like that's that's an important thing here, and I think that this antipathy to nationalism is a very, um, it's a very, it's a very kind of like liberal thing. Yeah. It's a very kind of like Ugh, nationalism. That's ugly. Yeah, for you. Like in New York City, nationalism is ugly. Yeah, I get it. Like that's true, but like it's totally different. I don't know. In say like Lahore in 
mm. you know, like 19, you know, 33 or whatever. Right. Like it's a different story. And like the, I, I also like, I, so I guess that's like my, my, that's one of the kind of like, like, you know, with grown up eyes looking back and like, you know, this is, this book reads to me as kind of like, um, it is a kind of a slow radicalization. You can't help but get radicalized. Like when you, when you like experience what we experienced over for, I imagine from 1979 or whatever to like 1993 when he wrote this book he had to watch all these crazy things happen like you know like you know i can't expect that you know that was a period of radicalization obviously the palestinian national movement has its own story here and the let's say degradation of it or it's kind of the defeat of the intifada if you want to talk about that that's not in this book that's later obviously yeah. but in the sense that like oslo oslo looms here in this book mm -hmm the yeah. failure of Oslo, what Oslo represents. And a lot of people would look at Oslo and say, that's bourgeois Palestinian nationalism in action, right? That like they took, they took this great nationalist project and they just empowered a bunch of useless fat cat elites and they made this deal with the Zionists, which is not off, right? In the case of the, the in case of like 90s Palestinian authority, that's not, that's not, that's, that's not incorrect, mm -hmm. right? It's not like crazy incorrect, right? Mm -hmm. And so, there is a lot here to kind of like chew over and it's interesting, you know, it's, it's definitely interesting to sort of think, to think like what, what would have Saeed's views been if he had reached, if he had reached this age, if he, I mean, he probably, what is he turning? He's probably turning. Yeah. He'd be turning 80 this year. Um, or some, not 80, but something around there. He'd be in his eighties. Uh, and, or possibly yeah, mid eighties. I don't know. But that is, that's something that I wonder about is that would the, would the kind of like, I don't know. Um, with the kind of increasing sentiment or like loudness of like say hitherto like obscured voices say from china for instance mm -hmm. like uh did they has there has that played a role in would that have played a role in his thinking in changing some of this stuff i don't know i don't mm -hmm. know it's weird it's weird and this is the thing i was talking about earlier about projecting onto people like a kind of subjectivity that we derive from reading them mm -hmm. that like we demand we demand coherence, you know, like we stand up at like the PTA meeting and we're like, sir, I demand a coherent author to come forward that doesn't have any contradictions, right? Like that's, that's like our, that's our literary yeah. thing that, which you can't, that's he's just a fucking human being puts on his pants at one leg at a time. Like, what do you want him to do? Like, he's going to say, he's going to say contradictory things. So that's, that's always in the yeah. background of all this. Well, I think it's interesting, too, in the context of, like, post-colonial theory, because it's definitely, a, I don't know, it's definitely, like, a form of knowledge production that thrives on contradiction. And the way that I think is very tied to, like, I, I was talking about earlier about diaspora, but I'm sure, like, Saeed as a subject in himself, there's a lot of contradictions in the way that his subject formation and his positionality can exist. And I think that that produces a lot of scholarship that prioritizes kind of non-resolution, this kind of absence over synthesis that doesn't really, that definitely feels like it's moving up against a more like positivist Hegelian approach to problems. I just feel like I see this very frequently with a lot of people who are kind of ordered into post-colonial theory. Well, so this is um, another sort of weird, you know, part of the story here is that Said is kind of, and this is again the author thing again of the the, the curse of institutionalization, um, yeah. is that you he got interpolated and kind of conscripted into the into the role of 
having founded a field, have becoming a foundational figure in a field. Mm. And he always actually disavowed this. He said, I'm not a, I'm not a post-colonial theory person. I don't do theory. I'm anti, like, he wouldn't, he, and he would say, I'm a literary critic. That's my training. And he would say that and he would defend that. And, and if anything, I would say that like, I think history, I think history sort of like judged, I don't know. It's hard to say because you know, you don't get to control what happens to your work, right? Yeah. You just do your work and how it's read is up to other people. And so in the case of Saeed, a bunch of people were so inspired by the kinds of critiques he was doing that they were so taken that it generated this, you know, going on, you know, three and a half decade. Wait, how's my math? 20 plus 20, 40. Uh, no, this like almost five decade long, like, uh, you know, actually it is coming up to five decades, coming to 50 years. Like that, that, this, that this interest in this book, immense interest, but you have to ask yourself, like, it's, it's a chicken and the egg question. Like, was it influential because it's popular or was it popular because it was influential, right? Like, that's yeah. always the kind of curse of this, of the existence of like, of being institutionalized or like, are you being read by a lot of people because other people had to read what, that in their grad school too? And like the force of inertia means that like people just like, okay, I read this in grad school. Why not? You know? And like, I've taught classes before and like, maybe I'm not representative, but definitely there is like a, well, this is what I know, you know, kind of approach. And so like, you wonder, is it, is it just because is it a product of how institutions work or is there some ethereal reason why or is there some other reason why some books really stand out and they really become celebrated and in the case of Said, they become like cornerstone books like people sort of build things on them like against the will of the authors often not often but you know sometimes that they say like oh don't incorporate me but like you don't you don't get to choose <laughs> like that's not up to you like you know you're that's the kind of weird the weird way that like text as commodities end up becoming is that they're like disconnected from their i guess they say their authorial hands that like that whatever that manufactured them and they float into this thing called the intellectual you know the the market of ideas which is the corny mm -hmm. experiment the corny experiment uh, american way experiment expression and so like <laughs> or like public sphere or whatever shit like you know like those kind yeah. of like you know that was the curse of orientalism i think is that it's not a curse but it's curse and a blessing i would imagine i mean ask him but obviously you can't he's not alive but like he would feel that like the you know, you want, you write a book for the sake of like, okay, I'm interested in these topics. And then suddenly it's turned into all these different things that have nothing to do with you. But, you know, you get invited to speak every single place in the world and you get blown around. And not that Saeed did these things for, for those reasons, obviously, like people just read books and it's just part of the profession. But, you know, there, there, we have to, when, when looking back now, I think that we do have to sort of think in terms of like, what did it, like, what are the book's ideas and what are the books, what has been the implementation of that book, of those ideas into field making and like the material connections in academia, which are like conferences, which are like book projects, which are like journal issues. These are like the things that like take up people's time, right? That like consume people and like calories are expelled, you know, like writing back. And the other thing in academia is that there's this natural thing of like, well, these there's so few books that get kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, canonized in the sense yeah. that they get institutionalized. Institutionalized is a less is a less is a more secular term, let's put it that way. But there's so few books. And the reason why it's useful to have a bunch of books that are at the center of the table is that everybody's read them and they can have a conversation about things. Right. Right. So there is a natural kind of 
encouragement to the existence of such texts as Said. Now, do they have the longevity that Orientalism has had? No, definitely not. Like books, it's hard for a book to last long. So that is a mark of kind of distinction, I would say, the fact that we're still talking about this book going on 50 years. I mean, that's an accomplishment. That's, that's an accomplishment. And in the sense that like people are still drawn to it, they're still like drawn to like, I mean, we're talking about Orientalism and Edward Said's books. But like, you know, Orientalism is obviously very taught and cultural imperialism too. Um, the lesser known books, probably obviously lesser known. Uh, you know, the music stuff, I imagine. is. It, I mean, I imagine the music people read it um, and, you know, it's more specialized. But, you know, there's not that much space in the spectrum of this world. And so the fact that Edward Said's, Edward Said's sort of interventions have lasted this long are really a testament to his influence, testament to like the quality, I guess I would say. Even if, you know, looking back on me, looking back now, I personally find myself like, wow, like that's, that's not how I feel now. <laughs> like that's, you know, I, and, that's, and that's more about me than it is the thing about this text, right? Is that like when you grow up through these texts because they get introduced to you when you're just like a baby. Like I was, you know, I'm guessing how old you guys are. Like I was in my 20s when mm -hmm. I saw this stuff and I was like impressionable and young. I was like, yeah, you know, like it was like a Molotov cocktail in my hand. <laughs> and, but 20, like, you know, all these years later, all that water under the bridge, you begin, oh, well, it's not really like, well, that's kind of simplistic thing to say. Like, oh, can you really say that? And like the the genealogy of Edward Said's training, his class position come forward in moments like this, in chapters like this. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I think like, and Joseph, I don't know if you want to. No, just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> but like, even when I was reading it, I mean, there were definitely parts where I feel like I was, I was reading it for the first time this summer. And there are definitely parts where I could tell he were, he was not taking a kind of materialist understanding of the politics seriously. He would kind of like gloss over it, particularly as it pertains to like the like gendered subject. He would like make a little parentheses of like, oh, it's interesting that this is like centered around man. And then he'd be like, anyways, <laughs> yeah. on to the next thing, which, and I'm like, okay, okay. Like I, I can understand. I mean, it's not like I understand in terms of I'm giving him a pass, but like I understand the position with which he's, He's looking at it, but then there are parts of the text, like, I don't know um, if you have it in front of you, but on 276, uh, the first paragraph, at the end of the first paragraph, um, or, yeah, at the end of the first paragraph, he's talking about Borges, Garcia Marquez, and Fuentes, and, and he makes this gesture towards like narrative and he goes mm. one vividly apprehends the dense interwoven strands of a history that mocks linear narrative easily recuperated essences and the dom and the dogmatic mimesis of pure representation and it does feel like something in this text feels very contemporary mm. despite what also feels like a very kind of traditional non-intersectional non-material politics mm. that's like underlining there does seem like there is something very contemporary in his gesture to like non-linearity and like, oh. I don't know, like generativeness. Maybe it's just because like I am in comparative literature and perhaps <laughs> this is literally all that um, we talk about. <laughs> but it does seem very like relevant. I don't know what you think. Uh, wait, am I muted? No, yes, I am. No. Uh, oh, wait, no, I'm not. Ha <laughs> I no. thought I was. 
Well, so I, I did, I did, I came from, I come from, unfortunately, just kidding, uh, uh, from comparative literature as well. And it's true that these are, these are the sort of perennial issues. And actually that's where Said came from. He was like kind of comparativist in, uh, he was kind of came out of this philological tradition, which again, doesn't really exist anymore. Um, a lot of, a lot of the thing, the worlds that Said sort of came from don't exist. And he said that in this really, really moving interviews, Edward Said, the last interview, I think it's called. Um, it's really good. You can get it on YouTube and stuff. Um, it, it, you know, he talks about, he says this thing about like, there are no people like me, that he's from a world that doesn't really exist. And I mean, he's talking about his own class and, but his own class of people in terms of Palestinians from this era and whatever, and like a kind of, uh, upward sort of ascendancy of, of upper class people that live for a short amount of time, you know, middle class, cause they were kind of middle class people. They weren't like upper elite elite, but, um, you know that he, he, you know that was a world that there are a lot of worlds where that he came from that didn't exist by, especially right now, but even sort of twenty years ago, and I think the sort of the 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 not need, but there was there is there is this thing inside to kind of like 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 the 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 text that he's kind of responding to the intellectual tradition that he's responding to, it's very different. Than the one that comes, let's say, like that's like born of the generation of like his younger students. That like yeah. the generational shift between kind of like big ideas, intellectual and like more reified technical expertise. And Said kind of wrote about this periodically about you know the heavily kind of like um, hyper specialization. And he kind yeah. of was against this that like this culture of hyper specialization and theory writing for other people and that like stuff that was kind of '90s humanities sort of like fretting the discourse we didn't call it that back then but actually we probably did come to think of it we were the first people to call it the discourse but like the people the worry was you know the worried whether there was all this dense writing and it was kind of european in tone and all these theory people that they were writing for other three thousand other people and you know and kind of said was said was what we would say on the more conservative side of this debate he's like oh you should just write for a normal audience and have them read you widely and that's that's whatever that's one view but I think that, like, ultimately, that, like, the kinds, the kind of close reading that Said practices in a book like Culture and Imperialism, like, and it, it, it is, it is, I would say, the kind of, I want to say the norm in the sense that, like, there is very, in Fanon, there was the sort of, there was the, recru there was the kind of active discussion of violence and what it does and how it can clean, how it can be a cleansing force. You again, you can't talk like that in modern academia. You can't say that stuff. So, like, a guy like Said wrote, wrote, and like composed and was a product of this pretty conservative academic world. So, it's interesting that, like, they, that these places that these people he cites are so radical, and also his influences, you know, say among the Palestinian liberationist world, that they are radical too in the sense that they confront their enemy. However, I would say that his antipathy to a lot of a lot of the sort of third worldist moments that he didn't recognize as like something in it as, as, as secular humanists, for instance, you know, Chinese peasants like coming together and fighting, fighting, you know, their fighting their colonial masters. And then also the sort of elite that had been ruling them for a century, you know, like that kind of thing, you know, I don't think appeal to sight. I don't think it very much interested in him that, that, that to him did not sort of was interesting at all to him. Or if it was, it was something that, I would say he was like afraid of or like something would actively he would not he would find it distasteful. I mean, he wasn't a Marxist. 
he didn't believe in communist revolution um and so you know this is the weird these are the kind of weird contradictions that like Said is so beloved by people who call themselves anti-imperialists, right? Mm. That like in the end, he probably didn't share a lot of the views. Now, this is our problem, not his, in the sense that like we shouldn't expect our intellectual, you know, um, uh, like influences, for lack of a better word, to look like us. They shouldn't. We shouldn't put that on them. That's that's like that's our choice is to make them into influences. That's something that like we do. So it's the I think it's more interesting to sort of tease out the contradictions and to talk about the places where, at least to my eye, he falls into sort of like liberal traps, you know, mm -hmm. that like liberal things about, you know, this this really simplistic thing about nationalism being basically bad, you know, like equating it with bourgeois nationalism, which is something that like someone who dismisses workers' revolution out of hand would do, mm -hmm. right? That 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 would be out of hand for him to say that like, oh, I don't want that. Like, I don't want, that's not something I find. And so that's, I think that's part of the tension here is that mm -hmm. he, and he has so many Marxist influences. I mean, this whole essay is like Mark Marxist influences, right? It's like yeah. CLR James, Fanon, Lukash. Like these guys are all Marxists. Like they were all like, they were all kind of like radical, but, but Said was coming at it from a secular humanist, which some people would say are not necessarily, um, can be rectified, but I think a lot of people, including myself, would say they can't be. And that's part of the disjuncture here. Right. And even that, like, Said is so rad, because even in terms of Cezanne, like, Cezanne is a perfect example of a Marxist who also, because of the um, departmentalization of Martinique, acted not really in favor of his, like, I don't know, he didn't really act in favor of his own people in that sense for a kind of like French, I don't know. I mean, even he has a lot of contradictions as a Marxist and particularly as it pertains to nationalism. And I and and, and so it's like, hmm, I don't know. I don't know, Joseph. <laughs> I'm, just no, I'm just, I mean, yeah, I don't know if you want to respond to that first on Césaire because um, I wanted to talk a bit about Lukash and maybe we can kind of come to that next. No, I don't. Uh, I think in terms of like Césaire is that there were that this the this is part of the result is that we we put so much on these people's shoulders that like the ways that they come to kind of for lack of a better word disappoint us are really they get magnified. But it's really I would say that like it was wrong for us to put on say Fanon or Césaire or Said put on their shoulders this burden of like. You need to you need to articulate our liberation. You need to sort of like put it on the ground and like and 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 sort of dig the foundations of it. Where you can't really do that, right? That there are so many other people with shovels at that same yeah. scene that like that don't you know that don't think like intellectuals that like and that's that's because the only people who really talk about third world liberation today are intellectuals. Yeah. <laughs> like they're not they're not you know they're either doing it in the third world and they're not talking about it. Or they're making careers off of it the way that mm -hmm. happens here, right? And so, like, this is this is the this is the weird thing, you know. Like, this is the weird thing, and also, you know, Sahid did have this burden of being, of of being a, from a people who weren't allowed to be, right? Palestinians weren't allowed to exist, right? Famous statement of 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 um, God, what was her name? This the Israeli female prime minister. God, I forget. Golda Meir. She said, "Oh, what are the Palestinians? They don't exist." Like. 
you know like you know like that like what would that be like and like he had a he had somebody like there was some rando guy who like went out of his way to write some essay to say that oh edward said fabricated his life in palestine right like he was forced to take on this role of being a paradigmatic palestinian and so insofar as like oh look even your greatest intellectual has false origins you people are a bunch of fakes right like imagine like that had to be on your shoulders that like that's what you had to like your very existence was called into question by you know and told that oh your connection to the land that i'm as a zionist supposedly do have from 2000 years ago your connection is fictional even though you were born there you grew up there your house was there that you can go and return to your house it's sitting there right it got like turned into an office apparently his house so like that that was the absurd world that he had to live in. i mean also there was it wasn't just the rhetoric wasn't just verbal he, he was threatened he had like you know his office was firebombed i think at one point he had like a fbi he had like a panic button installed in the fbi the fbi also surveilled him you know yeah. so like this guy was not he was not just like a talker he wasn't like when i say he's like a liberal i don't mean to like dismiss him or anything or like downplay the struggles that he faced and even just being like a liberal like normie palestinian which he never was but even <laughs> that like is hard enough insofar as like they'll never you know, like he made a life for himself, and on top of that, he he um, he kind of protected a lot of people, and kind of uh, protected a lot of people, and kind of built these departments at Columbia, uh, in the sense that not built, but you know, he had a lot of he had a lot of say institutional influence around him, and a lot of people's careers are thanks to Edward Said, or not thanks to, but like he helped a lot of different people sort of like get and make work, and so like there are there are like the real things that like intellectuals of his stature kind of do that. Are kind of invisible to us because we're outside of it and there and there are kind of reasons why like people are so influenced by their work right so a guy like saeed as rare as he is and as complicated as he is you know it is something to really commend and say like man it is hard to have your work read by any amount of people let alone tens of thousands of people over the course of five decades yeah that's a really good point amira just stepped out for a second but i Kind of on that same note, I wanted to ask about the sections where he discusses Lukash and Cabral, because I thought he was doing attempting to do sort of a similar thing, right? Like with the on page um, two seventy when he talks about Lukash, he makes this kind of claim that we Amir and I reading it together were like, uh, but how can he know that when he says my conjecture is that while he was writing the work Fanon read yeah. Lukash history and class consciousness. Like that sort of struck me as even reading that, it was like, that does seem very conjectural rather than necessarily based just because the French translation had just come out. It doesn't necessarily mean that he read it, but even the claim that he makes later on when he's interpreting Lukash and says, you know, he, he talks about subjective consciousness and reification and then says, this he says could be overcome by an act of mental will by which one lonely mind could join another by imagining the common bond between them, breaking the enforced rigidity. And then even to then like kind of jump across to the Cabral quote when he's interpreting uh, national liberation and culture, um, and then I can't remember the other text that he's interpreting. So he says like, for Cabral, the liberation gained by violence, organization, militancy is required because imperialism has sequestered the non-European away from experiences that have been permitted only to the white man. But again, as you're saying, it's he he's like very hesitant to embrace just that the violence organization and militancy part and has to kind of include cabral's quote about culture being you know culture 
being available to people of color and not just being a, an attribute of privileged people or nations. And to end those barriers is to admit the non-European to the whole range of human experiences. Something about that kind of strikes as like he's looking for the aspects of Lakash and Cabral as two as two Marxists, obviously, with the sort of different, as he says, oppositional Marxism. But he's looking, it's easier to find in Lakash, but for me, the claim with Cabral is difficult to say that, you know, obviously Cabral is very, is interested in culture, but he's sort of looking for culture and privileging it over what Cabral has just said is to him important as well, which is violence, organization, and militancy, and the kind of armed struggle which he which he believed in. So it, it strikes as a kind of like ability to privilege the engagement of the mental, the active mental will, and the engagement with culture over what Cabral is, as you were just discussing. Cabral is actively engaged in struggle in Guinea-Bissau and dies in that struggle. And it's he's not, you know, purely involved in a sort of academic, conjectural, cultural work. But maybe that's a little bit being too harsh on Said and saying that he's only he's not because he's as you're saying, he's not only interested in culture. He has sort of a multifaceted personality, but there does seem to be throughout the text a kind of ability to glean more of the cultural or mental work out of these individuals rather than their basis in class struggle or national liberation struggle. Yeah, I mean, the task of this book is pretty is pretty crazy because he's tr he's trying to do a kind of global reading yeah. of sort of capital I imperialism. Yeah. And and I think that like that necessarily sort of like that I mean you're putting on yourself a huge I mean that's the kind of like you know you write a book like this at a certain stage of your career because you're first of all allowed to in the sense that like the kinds of generalities required to move between these different locations. I mean this is yeah. also like kind of like a this is a thing that like like um comparativists get accused of a lot is like oh you people you never you never stay local you're never local enough to engage in a text as deep as it should right you're always kind of like moving from this country to that country doing you know whatever right like yeah. say that this term traveling theory which is a different story which actually he used Lukash to explain um but i think it's hard i actually i think for the Lukash thing is interesting because Lukash was kind of there was a whole thing with Lukash in terms of history and class consciousness and his relationship to um, the modern Soviet Union. So mm -hmm. for a while, there was like an era where people sort of like embraced the good Lukash, you know, mm -hmm. and kind of like, and kind of were like, oh, well, that's the good Lukash, like history and class consciousness. That's the good one. And, but not the bad Lukash, which is the blob, you know, like, and like there is, and that's, that's something that we do in like anti-communist Cold War America. That like yeah. it, what's interesting is also that the Said lived during the hate like the height of the Cold War right. in terms culturally, right? That like the USSR is not a force in this book. I don't remember anywhere Said mentioning the existence of Russia or like yeah. like it does it, it feels like there are just places of the world that like don't exist for Said. I mean Latin America we can talk about mm. it's kind of these are kind of lacuna, I would say. Yeah. Um foresight and that like which again like you can't it's hard to like put on people and say oh you failed to put up this you failed to do that because it's like man it's a book it's you can't you can't do like a whole map of the planet as the, the shape it would be if you did like a detailed map of the planet it would be the size of the planet and if you wanted to like appease people like me right mm -hmm. so like that kind of demand of like not being specific enough 
and like being too general and moving around. I mean, that has its own whatever, like kind of bullshit aspect to it because you should you should judge a book for what it says. However, however, given that this chapter moves kind of interestingly from a bunch of pretty disparate places, geographies and like pretty specific that were and you know, were people who kind of wrote to their moment. And while at the same time averring from other other sort of like radical kind of like forms of opposition that don't in fall in line with his with his like you know with like a lot of liberals think of as like good resistance right that like mm-hmm. i don't know I, I i feel you know again i'm gonna be the the narcissistic iranian in the room and be like iran is a big fat is a big fat question book question mark yeah. in this book and just the the fact that like he can find no liberation in people in people you know like in 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 a story like the iranian revolution mm-hmm. now i think that has a lot to do with how a lot of people in the west especially iranian diaspora people handled the revolution i think there were a lot of traumatized people who you know for their own reasons you know rejected the revolution or didn't like it's how it how it's its results you can say mm-hmm. who then migrated to the west and who may have rubbed shoulders with with edward said and i i believe that in places like academia, it attracts a certain class of people who would be pretty, who don't have, who have a lot of antipathy for, say, you know, like a radical, you know, like Shia cleric from, you know, Qom, you know, called Khomeini. Like, it'd be easy to sort of see the disconnect that happens there between a class of people like Western intellectuals and the scale of a project like Iran, especially given everything that happens in the 80s um, surrounding Iran, given the kind of like hyper, hyper, uh, Iranophobia that kind of takes over the U.S. You know, mm-hmm. to my mind, I don't think Said really, I don't think Said kind of worked very hard to point out that, like, yeah, Iran is like an object of U.S. bullying for, for imperial bullying for forty years. Right. That, like, Iran, I would say Iran didn't merit his defense. I would say that now. I think it's yeah. pretty fair to say that didn't merit his defense. That, like, you know, I, I don't like that. I don't like that government. It scares me. And so I'm not going to say anything positive about it. And I hate to say this. I wonder how many people will get mad at me for listening to <laughs> saying this. I, 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 I wonder what, if he was around in 2011, 2010, what he would have done on Syria, what he would have said about Syria, if he would have yeah. been part of the, you know, the wholesale class of people who just said, you know, like up with regime change. I mean, he was against regime change in Iraq. Um, I don't know. These are, these are unfair things to sort of throw at someone. I think it is conjecture, you know, to sort of say all this stuff. But it's uh, these are these are the tricky, div- divisive issues that Said kind of like skirts around in this while showing that he doesn't really like saying to say the un- he says unhappy, what he says unhappy cultural consequences. Here we go. I am not particular. Here it is actually two seventy five. I am not particularly interested in spending too much time discussing the altogether obvious unhappy cultural consequences of nationalism in Iraq, Uganda, Zaire, uh, Libya, the Philippines, Iran, and throughout Latin America. Yeah. Nationalism's disabling capacities have been lingered over and caricatured caricatured, quite <laughs> long time by a long army of commentators, expert, and amateur alike for whom the non-Western world for whom the non-Western world, after the whites left it, seems to have become little more than a nasty mix of tribal chieftains, despotic barbarians, and mindless fundamentalists. A more interesting commentary on the nativist tendency and the rather native foundationalist ideology that makes it possible is provided in such accounts as, mis- as Creole or Mestizo culture, as in, although we all know about the word Mestizo, 
and and Gloria and Deluza. But like this is he's um this is a pretty like this is a pretty backhanded and broad insult. You're yeah. saying you're saying, oh sorry, people of Iraq, Uganda, Zaire, Libya, the Philippines, Iran, and throughout Latin America, like you're telling them, sorry, like this sucks. Like your nationalism produced ugly children. Like yeah. that's that yeah. to me, I don't I don't see that. Like I don't agree with that. I don't agree with any of that. I would never venture a statement like that. I feel that that's a statement that comes from someone who let the liberal sort of anglophone media determine his mm. his, you know, views on these places. I would say mm. that. I would say that because I don't see, you know, and then just a little bit earlier he talks actually again, another Iran thing. Something of this passion and intensity is found in the blanket condemnations of quote the West, such as Jalal Ali Jali Ali Ahmad's Occidentosis, a plague from the West, or in Woli Shoyinka's applying the existence of a pure native African. I don't know. I I I I don't know. This is to me that this is like liberal hand wringing, and says that like well I don't really like this this business of manufacturing a a revolutionary subject because mm. it might it not, might not be diverse enough and like this is like the constant thing that t today a lot of academics get themselves caught up with yeah. so on the one hand that they that they talk about revolution they talk about you know like you know they 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 valorize certain projects but on the other hand certain liberation projects and talk about you know resistance yeah. and use all these words but on the other hand wholesale dismiss or just ignore or actively collude against you know like people's attempts to liberate themselves across the different planet because you know, and oftentimes this means pointing to Comprador Y, who works in University in America X, right. and saying, well, that person says that the revolution in Zimbabwe was bad, so I don't want anything to do with that, right? And like this, I think ultimately it says more about the provincialism of the intellectual class. Uh, it says a lot about the role that the Cold War played in the formation of a lot of the marketplace of ideas. I think we're still... I think a lot of what gets said about Iran, for instance, is just an extension of the stuff that gets said about the USSR and or what got said about the USSR, that a lot of that kind of plus Orientalism, obviously. Um, but like that that for me is that for me is something that, you know, I recognize in a lot of different things. So I don't know. Like it's a it's it's a mixed bag, I would say. I mean, I feel like a heretic. I'm like insulting my I'm insulting <laughs> my uh, you know, my in intellectual forefather. But you know, I think part of growing up, I guess, is is looking at your own origin story and like reading it and being like, "Oh man, like I was a dumbass lib, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh man, like I don't think this way now." I don't know. I I also feel like I don't know. I don't know as much as Saeed did in his lifetime. Saeed was a very well-read and very, you know, very kind of like um, what's the word? He's a very obviously worldly figure, um, you know, somebody, that, again, things that that culture of, of learnedness that I don't think exists to this day. I don't think it exists in the kind of people, the kind of people who like grew up this kind of secular humanist training and like the Latinate or whatever. I don't know about Latin, but in that kind of classic humanities mode, it doesn't exist, which is to say like humanities has been largely hollowed out anyways, as we know from different schools. But like, it, you know, so it is. There is a kind of um, there is a kind of otherworldliness to looking back at Said's work and kind of you know only he could write like oh unless otherwise otherwise noted you know all translations are mine you know like that was the kind of era that those guys were from 
which might not make sense to us in insofar as we're like hyper localized and we have like an immense amount of information just literally at our fingertips at all times that like we can check at any time that we have every book on the planet is available on our phones in the sense that like we can get PDFs of stuff. And I just, I don't know. I think that like the, I, I always harp on this, that the difference between the digital and the analog is like the only real, uh, like the only real um, temper, like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What's the word when you divide things up into time is the only real periodization that will, that will remain in the future. It won't be like 18th century, 19th century. It'll be like digital and analog. Like that's it. Was yeah. it a digital? Was it an analog? Was it a text that was written in an analog era? Or was it a child of the digital era? Or is it kind of Said kind of this book is kind of a mixture of the two because, you know, this was obviously published when there were such things as email and stuff and internet. And Said actually wrote for a broad audience for the internet. I mean, he wasn't a Luddite by any stretch. Um, he like wrote for Al Ahram. He had a large global following, which again, you know, when you reach this kind of influence, your books live on, but certainly not for five decades. So Said is, you know, you got to get your hats off to there. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I just, do you want to go first? Or? No, because no, because my question is very, no, because you're going to ask something. Yeah, I just, I mean, <laughs> I do want to jump on the points you just made there. Because like, for example, on, this stood out to me as well, like on page 265, where he's talking about V.S. Naipaul's uh, A Bend in the River, and he has this little like parenthetical a note in the middle of the page where he he's talking about the big man in the text and he says this is like the cult of uh yeah the yeah his invented tribal traditions again like you in that list that you said libya and zaire are both on there so he's very you know very quick to like condemn libya condemn Gaddafi. Yeah. but it's, it's there's something about reading it though too that i feel like it's almost like if he had a more sort of principled marxist materialist reading perhaps there would be some maybe some validity if he was for example like discussing the concept of neocolonialism there would be maybe some validity to what he's talking about of saying like there are in the in the more like economic or political sense instances of for example with Mobutu I mean that is an example of a sort of western backed project even though as I agree with you that his critique where he's talking about the projects that I like versus the ones that I don't like can become this kind of judging from afar, but yet maybe that is one example of Zaire that is a uh, very much came into the Western fold and, and was neo-colonial in that way. But yeah, I wonder, I don't know what you make of that is this kind of like, because I would, I would sort of draw a, a difference between a Gaddafi and a Mobutu, but maybe even that kind of judgment is like on this basis of the projects I like versus the ones, but I would think on a Marxist or sort of like, you know, anti-neo-colonial basis, you could make a judgment, but his becomes sort of devoid of a political context when, as you're saying, and I think you could do the same thing with Iran, where it's it's just different. It's not like a Zaire in that case. I don't know. Yeah, there, the, 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 the curse of writing a book at this level of, of globality is that you, you, you know, you lose the, you lose the forest through the trees in a sense, or you lose mm -hmm. the trees through the forest. How's that? Is that yeah. you... You know, you can't help you, and and when you then ref, when those are also refracted from like the natural thing that happens when you talk about such broad things is that you end up missing things, sure. But then refracted through the kind of lenses that you know a guy like Said has in front of him, which is you know the 
Ivy League, the U.S. Ivy League, the kind of intensely anti-Iranian atmosphere of the 80s and the 90s, you know, the, um, and also, I, I wouldn't, you know, Said was not a fan of, of religion, mm. you know, he was a proud secularist, so to him, I would say that he was a part, like a lot of people, I mean, millions of people, I would say, even some Iranians, lots of Iranians, I would say, feel this way, is that the specter of religious nationalism frightens them. And it's something that's very alien to them. And I'm not going to tell people like, oh, you're wrong to think that. Right. Like, I don't, like, I think it's, it's weird for me too. Like, I'm not a religious nationalist. Like, I don't know what that's like, right. you know, but I, I guess my own, my own would, my own hope would be I'm literate enough in these histories to know better than to participate in the, than to take, not to take the sides, but. I would know better than to say that, like, the common cause I have with people who, who might be, you know, like flagellating themselves in the name, you know, at Muharram and stuff, like stuff that, like, to me personally, like, I would never do. Right? That doesn't make sense to me. But, like, it's not when we're talking about third revolutions, I guess, I guess there's a language that you have to adopt, which is like, I don't, this is not my revolution. I don't own it. I can't, I can't, I can't claim to assert any kind of like moral authority over it. And ultimately, it's not my job to endorse or not endorse it, right? Mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just my job to understand it, right? And to, if I have any opinions about other places, capital O, that like, mm -hmm. that it's my job to like, it's my job, it's my job to be as informed as possible and also create a context where my opinions are relevant, right? That like, wh who the fuck cares what I have to say about Chavismo? Like, yeah. I'm some Iranian guy living in Toronto, like, what the hell do I have to say to contribute to Chavismo? Now, do I know a lot of cool people who are into Chavismo, who are invested in it, who want to talk about it? Yes. And I can bring them on my show and I can learn about them. And I can maybe kind of like tepidly kind of ask questions and form my own opinion and, you know, kind of like seed the ground to someone else. Like, yes. But like, that's you know to, to to obviously Saeed was not a podcaster, but you know like and to ask him to become a podcaster and not the kind of essayist authorist is like kind of ridiculous. But like in the sense that like I don't know I would I I guess I guess I don't know it, it's it's we're being unfair I would say we have the we have the comforts of twenty years of you know ret retros of of retrospectively looking and saying like well my man failed here, like well like and and so like that for me I find myself like I wanted to avoid doing this. You know, in this in this episode, I want to be like, well, I don't want to do that because it is also in the sense of like I'm putting the burden on him to like be coherent and be cohesive, which is unfair. Like, like there's all these like quotes of him like defending Salman Rushdie, right? Was just, was like of uh, circulating him. Like, yeah. At the end of his at the end of his life, he he saw what Salman Rushdie became, and like I'm sure that like we're saying alive today that like however much you'd be upset by this kind of news is that it would be in the context of like, well, this guy has been like a rampant endorsement, endorser of, 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 you know, like U.S. imperialism for 20 years and yeah. the kinds of things that like people say. His opinion, he sounds more like Daniel Pipes than, than any person who's ever read any Mahmoud Darwish, right? That like, yeah. it doesn't matter in the end, you know, like the, the, the unity of the intellectual. That like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't exist, first of all. But even then, if you like, if an intellectual even puts out there that like, oh, I have this unified vision of myself from beginning to end, like mm. that doesn't even matter itself. Like, who cares, right? That like, what do you do with that unity? You use it as like some bookmark that like, oh, like that, oh, you know, Fanon said this and whatever. No, it's like 
you take their ideas, you read them, you consume them, and you and you you create a kind of like intertextual reading of all of these texts, and you apply them to the different situations that come into your purview, and you try to like understand the world. And this is what any student, you know, reader, amateur, professional, like you know, this is what this is the task of reading, of close reading, is that it's on you to like be an educated, you know, like enlightened subject, and not mm -hmm. just sort of like look to authorities like Said for like a wholesale vision of the world. Right. And no. that was, that was my mistake. You know, like that was the mistake I made in grad school, which by the end of my grad school, I was really like disillusioned from, I would say even Saeed too. I was kind of like, eh, whatever. I like, I was like, I kind of like just kind of continue. I, in my head, I said, okay, I stopped doing a, pro I was originally going to write a kind of intellectual biography of Edward Said. That was going to be my, that was going to be my, um, you know, PhD project. And then I eventually kind of narrated myself as like, well, I want to do something Saidian, you know, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to something Saidist, I guess, which is a dumb way of putting it. But like yeah. that, that yeah. was that was yeah. kind of my own trajectory. And it was it was my fault for for trying to kind of like lasso this guy and 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 like make him into something that I could then like take to conferences with me and like put him into an article and, you know, do that and. You know, I don't know. That's that's my fault, not his. No, but I think there is something to say about like even the project of the book and the title, like the title culture and imperialism. Perhaps it's just me, like yeah, maybe I'm like gaslighting the dead side. <laughs> but obviously like the, the title doesn't really line up with the project, which to me really seems like this canonical reading of like of of, of books that have to do with imperialism. And he's like tying them in this very dialectical way with the history of imperialism that doesn't necessarily leave room for actually like colonized people to like have like their, their like their story to be prioritized. But I don't really think that that's the project of the book. Like the book is not to like prioritize necessarily the like national consciousness of like a colonized group of people. It's to like tie like Western canon staples to like their imperialist like use or history. Yeah, you're right, and I think that's I I, I disagree with you there. Is that the 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 title actually he does deliver on the title of the promise of the title? I would say because it's a it's a he's alluding to at least he's alluding to a kind of tradition of title in the sense that like there's Matthew Arnold culture and anarchy anarchy. And there's also Raylan William Williams' culture and materialism, right? That these are these are kind of foundational texts of literary criticism of a certain kind of anglophone literary criticism, mind you. <laughs> that like that's the world that Said came from, obviously. But like that, he's he's kind of he's. I mean, I think it's in, he mentions it in the intro, if memory serves me right. Is that he is kind of he is trying to trying to draw this continuum of forces of between this kind of grand critique project of critique from Arnold through Williams to Said, And so he's, he is trying to, whether he delivers on that, you know, can be up for debate for, with people, but I think he does. And, and that's actually explains the scope of the book, why it is so general. And it does read like a book of essays, which I think it is. I think it is a book of essays that were, you know, a lot of, he gave a lot of talks in like the eighties and stuff. And like, he was just like flown around the world. And I feel that like naturally what happens is you end up, stitching together parts of your thought, you know, as, you know, according to the kind of dominant forms of whatever publication, publication era you're in. So academics are supposed to like write books. So 
he kind of wrote this book called Culture and Imperialism. Um, but it's in the sense that it's not really a book, but it's more of a stitched, a very well stitched together, you know, series of essays and interventions that are pretty localized, but not, but I would say pretty superficial. Is especially yeah. compared to especially compared to Orientalism, which are deep, deep, profoundly deep readings of a lot of different things. Whereas here you have a kind of like um, there is more of a drive-by sense. He's not lazy by any stretch, of course not. He's fifty times the scholar that I ever was in my lifetime. But um, I think that I think that the the scope of this is a different kind of a different kind of scholar wrote this book than in the one who who tried to, to orientalism. And of course he was, he was like a, you know, 20 years older. He was, or like 15 years older. He was a different person. He had, he had celebrity thrust on him. He had all kinds of, you know, like yeah. he probably had all kinds of institutional pressures put on him. Like it must've been nice in the seventies, just be Edward Said. You were like this tenured prof at an Ivy league school doing your thing, hanging around with your like other smart friends. And then all, <laughs> all of a sudden you get this, you get this huge thing of like being a star and like writing a famous book. You know, it, it can't be easy. Right. Do you want to say anything? No, no, no. I no, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I don't know. There's just so much to say. Because I actually, like, when I finished reading the chapter, I actually really liked it. But it was, even after the chapter that we read, um, it was so hyper-represented by, like, what I would consider like masculinist approaches to liberation, that it felt like in trying to like create a schema of like culture, cultured imperialism, it's like, it just like, what's the point of creating a schema of it? I guess, I guess that was what I left of thinking like, what, like, is that even conducive to like an actual liberatory project? You know? Um, I think I that's that's another one where we're 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 being unfair in demanding that of people that like we don't we 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 should get in this habit of 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 limiting our demands from the intellectual class because we I know this from experience is that the moment that they like enter into like the capital R real world is that like the lofty ideas and the kind of dis the laws the laws of gravity that like they live in don't apply to like the outside world. So like a lot of like the fluencies or like the, the things that are taken as given in our academic world and like the East Coast humanities, whatever, those make no sense to people around the world. That like there could be no, and so, and, and, and there are so many different kinds of liberation projects, most of which we'll never hear about, right? Like the reason why you hear about certain liberation projects is because, is, is very political, I would say. That like some people, made it actively their work to talk about this kind of liberation. But like, when's the last time you heard from about like the Tamil Tigers? Now, the Tamil Tigers don't exist as an organization anymore and they haven't for, I think, almost 15 years. They basically got defeated and destroyed. But like, you would think that like, the stories here of human, of sort of whatever, human resistance now, you know, Tamil Tigers are, someone would say like, well, that's not a real liberation project. We can get into that. Like, I don't know. Like, there's a whole, you, you know, to... To talk politically requires so much localization, and that localization takes time and resources and energy and investment, so that just getting to the point of being like, okay, in Sri Lanka, there are these groups, there's the Sinhalese and the Tamil, you know, like, to just, like, go through that kind of, like, basic understanding, especially for us, because we are, 
so fucking provincial. Sorry, can I swear? Yes, this is my own show. <laughs> like, so like, we are so fucking provincial that we are surrounded by so much provinciality, proud of it too, right? Like, these, the, peop- the, era, the place we live is proudly ignorant of, like, their own worldview, of, like, their own lack of knowledge of the world. That, like, you know, to even the thought of seeing a foreign language is, like, red to a bull, you know? Like, that, like, so, like, that's the environment that we live in, trying to, like, make sense of that. And we're like this tiny, tiny minority of people. And I'm talking academics. I'm not even talking anti-imperialists, okay? That's a minority inside of a minority inside of a minority, right? So like the, the community of people we're talking about is small, right? Like the number of people who've heard about Edward Said on the planet is actually huge in terms of like intellectuals and writers and especially literary critics. But like in the grand scheme of things, like this is pretty rarefied stuff. And yeah. so... The fact, you know, uncomplicated by Edward Said's sort of position and political position and the role he played, you know, as a kind of like interlocutor between different parts of his life. And even then, you know, like his his connection to Palestine was, you know, he had to he had to work at it. He had to go back multiple times. He had to reconnect his his wife, his second wife um, sort of reconnected him to the world of, of the Middle East. And she was I want to say Egyptian. Don't quote me on that. But like. That that itself is that itself is his own personal history and reconnection to this land that he was violently dispossessed from and then exiled from like, once again in the form of you know well you don't really fit in here we're sending you to America so the complicated complicated identity a character and the works reflect that I think cultural imperialism is a really interesting really diverse text there are places where you're like whoa but then other places that like you have a hard time imagining people so called young little yeah, assistant professors today who are like radical, radical. You, they wouldn't say some of this stuff, because yeah. I think it is a reflection of the pretty conservative bent. Now, ten years after this book is published, the U.S. there are like half a million troops or like quarter of a million troops sitting in Baghdad or like in the in Iraq occupying it. Said is watching this, yeah. you know, that like and seeing so many of his peers of his, you know, joining in on the fun. Christopher Hitchens, Salman Rushdie, whatever, yeah. like people yeah. of his liberal elite who are, you know mouthpieces of the status status quo that he would call it as he said in this interview mm-hmm. so that's all there and this is all complicated blah 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 i've been going on for so long we should we should wrap it up well we don't have any more questions but i wanted to maybe just like even put out a final thought um just for me and i don't know if you want to add anything else but i it's even so funny to try and read this and talk about it in the age of the internet as you were kind of alluding to because we really do demand from people who are speculating on the internet, we have this very kind of atomized identity, you know, technologies of the self, that whole thing on the internet. And it's kind of like the positions you draw as you, it was funny when you were mentioning, like, it doesn't even really matter what we think about a lot of these things because it will sort of happen irrespective of our opinion. But it's funny that we do demand a a sort of like, standard of consistency from individual academics and even thinkers in general when just as individuals they have very little coherence and and as we're talking about throughout if you were to point to sort of the ideology like i think secular humanist is a way to do it but even that need to like tendentialize people and say what their worldview is can often be very uh you know it it can miss a lot of what they believe about the world so yeah, it's just, it's very, it's right to say like his, his ignorances and his lack of reflection on certain things are very, they can be sort of profound and, and, and scream, but it's also hard in, cause I think we also live in a time where it's like, especially in the context of the internet and something like Twitter as well, 
there is a kind of need to have a very coherently defined worldview. And that can often be sort of difficult when you when you don't even know generally what you think about everything and don't have a, an ideology you're following word for word of. That's sort of a ramble, but I don't know what you think about that too, of the difficulty of synthesizing just something out of a very contradictory individual. Yeah, no, this is something that I've uh, I struggled with. And just in the sense of like, I I have a, I I used to be an opinion haver. I feel I would like have opinions. That's, that's what I would do. And like it's funny that I say this on like a podcast that I run, which is full of my opinions. That <laughs> yeah. like I feel that I have fewer opinions now than I used to. That like in the sense that like and maybe this is just you know I'm approaching forty and whatever. Like I'm getting older and like I'm just I'm like not my like arrogant fucking dipshit 20 year old 30 year old self that i you know have been for so long and like like just experienced so many things where you're like wow i was fucking wrong about that like wow i was definitely not right there like oh, wrong turn in albuquerque like that's like you you can't help but like think that over as you age and stuff but like i i'm thinking more and more now that like it's my job to like opinion haver it's is less of an interesting thing and more opinion than like social network haver and that like my my utility in this world is connected to my ability is like a direct like link to like my ability to connect and link with other people. Yeah. And like, I can find these weirdos and attract them and they DM me or I DM them. And like, we can talk about funny, cool stuff. And it's like this disparate network of people. And I don't, and because it's like, you know, an hour long, two hour long conversation, it's, it's, it's very ad hoc. It's like just yeah. you and me talking, the three of us just chatting here you know whatever it's not you don't need immense amount of planning there doesn't have to there doesn't have to be meetings about it you don't have to like it's just you know we're talking and it's discourse and it's like kind of like in the air and if people want to listen to it that's great like i'm i'm honored that people sit and listen to this stuff like what the hell is wrong with you get a life go outside like but nonetheless you're here and i thank you for it but like i think that like my my ability to connect with weirdos and like interesting people is my skill and like, that's what I've turned into. Like, that's what I kind of, I think that like, it's better that I did this with my, my PhD training than just, you know, write that like right. the utility and like futility of writing that like, just, you know, I like people that write. I like that. It's good that people write. I'm glad other people do it, but I don't want to do it anymore. Like it was so fucking painful writing for an academic audience. It was so like yeah. spiritually painful um that i just don't want to do it and i'd rather just talk and i feel that like with talk it's uh it's much it's much lower calorie effort yeah. and i get i get the distillation of a lot of people's very smart people you know like i benefit from that like all these people who did years of training they come to me and like here are my results <laughs> you know like and like that's that's amazing for me because i guess get to sit here and i get to learn so i feel like the legacy of a guy like Edward Said is to like teach us that like there's there's like we are bathed in such immense ignorance and we have to work and like cloaked in so much like orientalist horseshit that like we have to work overtime just to just to get the basics to get like the basic nourishment intellectual nourishment of like okay what the hell is you know Thailand like where is Thailand what is these people like what language is it you know I mean of course that's like that's on any enlightened subject, they should do that. But like people don't have the time. So if you can bring that to them, that you can bring, you know, like a cat bringing a dead mouse to like the dinner table being like, here, 
here's a nice delicious lesson on you know the vietnamese people's struggle against imperialism like then i've i've done something i feel mm. like that's what could be called an accomplishment like i did something you know way more than i would have done writing for 80 people mm. yes thank you Sina. Yeah, thank you so much this was a great conversation thank we you guys thank you guys you invited me thank you for your time i appreciate it thank you for doing the work i hope you guys get more listeners you guys should be promoting the show more Definitely. Yeah, we <laughs> <Yeah>. should be. <laughs> like during the conversation, you should have been saying, "Oh, we did an episode on this." Like, "Oh, we did an episode on this." You gotta, you gotta hustle, man. It's a, it's yeah. a grind. Yeah, definitely. There's and literally I, I would, a million podcasts. You pick to... you up on the offer of like in the future doing a meeting and kind of working on the stuff to do. Yeah, I'll definitely keep in touch. Yeah, happy to help. I'm happy to help. And uh, yeah, just keep grinding out those episodes, man. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Do we just leave? Do we just? Yeah, so just uh well I'm I'm going to pray okay uh da, 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 stop. So